0: They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Before we begin, we wanted to remind you about the bargain offer available to you as a listener of our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20 Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of stuff available to our subscribers.
0: Yeah, there's tonnes of stuff there – videos, interviews and an archive of unparalleled treasures. POD20 at checkout at newscientist.com gets you your bargain subscription discount.
2: Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science – I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor.
0: And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. Joining us this week is New Scientist journalist Kat Delange. Hi, Kat.
2: Hi. On this week's show, we're looking at the frankly terrifying high temperatures currently being recorded in the Arctic. We're also going to hear about new findings on the long-term effects coronavirus can have on your health. And as well as that, we're discussing the fastest supercomputer in the world and hearing the sad tale of a whale with no tail. But first, Rowan, you've been preoccupied with a very important question.
0: Yeah, the question is, if you took your brain and somehow transferred it into a lovely warm vat where it was supplied with all the food and oxygen it needed, would you still be able to think? Would you still be you?
2: So are you your brain and nothing else or is your brain the entirety of the essence of you? Yeah. It's a a great question. Uh, Why is it so important?
0: Well, I guess it's important in an immediate sense, to people who are paying lots of money to have their brains or their heads cryo-preserved in, in liquid nitrogen. Uh, but, it's, yeah, but it's also important for our understanding of how the brain works and, it, and how it builds a picture of the world and how consciousness itself arises. Cat you can tell us about this, can't you? Uh,
1: Yeah, I can try. I mean, it's quite a mind boggling idea. But it's a question that we explore in the magazine this week. And for much of the 20th century, people assumed the answer to this brain in a vat thought experiment was yes, a disembodied brain continues to have a normal conscious. It's the brain itself that generates consciousness.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because we think of the brain as the, the seat of consciousness, right?
1: Yeah. But sort of in the last few years, we've started to understand that signals from the body influence perception and our sense of self. And it's obvious to think if you're exhausted or stressed, say, by the rigours of coronavirus, these things are going to influence our feelings and the way we think. And so then people came up with the idea of embodied cognition.
0: Right. This is basically, does the body rule the mind or does the mind rule the body? I don't know. Or is the idea that as well as the mind influencing the body, the body feeds back to the brain. And now there's growing evidence now that this is the case.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it started with something called interoception, which is this kind of sixth sense that we have about what's going on in our own body. And um, scientists devised this simple method to measure how interoceptive people are. So you get someone to count their heartbeats over a fixed time or to count how many times they think their heart has been beating. And you compare that to an actual objective count of, of their heartbeat. And people's ability to do this varies a lot. And those who can sense their heartbeat most accurately tend to make better intuitive decisions and are better at perceiving the emotions of others. And now some scientists are going further and saying that signals from our bodies are actually helping to form our sense of self.
0: Right. But doesn't it mean that people are, are just more thoughtful? You know, how does it show that the body itself feeds back and and changes the operation of the brain?
1: There are quite a few experiments that suggest that there's a strong link between the sense of interception and how good you are at that and the brain's notion of self. So this includes self-identification and self-location, where you think you are in, in physical space. And we're now able to measure these signals from the body in the brain. So quite a few neuroscientists believe that the rhythmic nature of signals from these organs, in particular your heartbeat, helps to generate a feeling of yourself being continuous in time, for example. So the feeling that the me sitting here right now is the same me that I experienced yesterday.
0: Yeah, because people think about that, don't they? When you fall asleep or if you go under anaesthetic, how does your brain pick up on the continuity? Because when you wake up or you come round, you still understand that you are yourself and that you're, you've carried on through time.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting idea, actually, that maybe your brain is still measuring these body signals and that's, that's helping it to have this continuity. But the idea is that the brain processes signals from different parts of the body and from the outside world in different parts of the brain, and that the rhythm imposed by the bodily signals is what allows the brain to assimilate it all into one sense of self, that, the I that we experience.
0: And what sort of evidence is there for this?
1: Okay, so some neuroscientists have tried to look at the difference between I and me in the brain.
0: Yeah, what is the difference between I and me?
1: So the way they see it is that I is the most basic aspect of self, the aspect that comes before thought, the unified entity that does the thinking. And it's thought to be completely different from the kind of reflection about me that implies monitoring different bodily functions without that unified sense of the self, the I, as it were.
0: Okay, Uh, I like that. The I being the aspect that comes before thought.
1: Yeah, and brain scans have managed to show that there is actually a difference between these two concepts, or at least that the brain discerns between them depending on when the heart is beating. A region near the front of the brain thinks about me, and one further back is for I thoughts. And which one is active at a certain point in time is linked to the way that our heart is beating.
0: And all this also has practical applications, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, So... It's a way of thinking about autism because people with autism may have problems relating to the feelings of others. And some scientists think that this could be due to an overactivity in this mind-body connection. Their brains might be overwhelmed with the visceral inputs associated with their own and others' emotions. Um, And also with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, the signals from the body, such as the heartbeat, can overly influence the feelings that we experience in the brain, such as fear.
0: And to get more metaphysical, some people think that if if consciousness is embodied in this way, um, if you can only have consciousness with a body and with signals coming from a body, then you can't get artificial consciousness in a robot or in a computer.
1: Yeah, I mean, that depends what you think is necessary for consciousness. And consciousness is actually quite a slippery, yeah. a slippery concept in itself. So how you define it?
0: Yeah, I mean, some people think that... If you could scan the complete map of all the connections between all the neurons in the brain, the, the connectome, and, and you run that map on a computer, it would kind of just reboot the consciousness of that brain.
1: Well, yeah, that's the that's the transhumanist dream, isn't it?
0: And I guess if that dream is is going to be shattered if embodied consciousness <laughs> is right, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Kat, I should have said you've written a book about the brain, haven't you? Ten Voyages Through the Human Mind. So we should check that out for more on this stuff.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, our celebration of newsworthy organisms. And this week, I wanted to tell the story of the whale without a tail.
0: Yeah, that sounds like one of Rudyard Kipling's just so stories, like how the leopard got its spots, except a darker version.
2: Yeah, sadly, it's a pretty dark just so story. Um, this is how a fin whale, uh, which is the second largest creature in the world, lost its tail This particular animal was first noticed about 15 years ago when researchers in the Mediterranean spotted a whale with a weird diving behaviour. When fin whales dive, they don't usually raise their tails above the water, but this one did, which made it look sort of like it was limping. And the researchers back then noticed it was missing half of its tail, so probably it was having to raise what was left of its tail out of the water because it was having trouble propelling itself downwards. And they name this whale Codomozza, meaning cut of tail in Italian.
0: And it's in the news again this week, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is, because it's been spotted in the busy waters of the Strait of Messina, which is the stretch of water between mainland Italy and Sicily. And it now seems that the whale has sadly lost the other half of its tail too, uh, the Italian Coast Guard escorted the animal into the open ocean to prevent any collisions with ferries, and now this animal has been seen in the Pelagos Marine Sanctuary in the waters between Monaco, France and Italy.
0: So it's lost both halves of its tail, which reminds me of it's Oscar Wilde, isn't it? To lose one looks like misfortune, but to lose both looks like carelessness. How, how's it yes. how's it managed to lose the other half of its tail?
2: So probably both times it's due to being um, hit by a ship. Um, The area where Kodomutsa is currently, the North Mediterranean, is classified as a high risk for ship collisions by the International Whaling Commission. And you can't really blame the whale for this. Um, In busy shipping lanes, the undersea environment is really noisy, which makes it very difficult for them.
0: And how is it going to manage with no tail?
2: So Kodomotsa can swim quite fast, uh, despite the impairment, but the whale tends to stay on or near the surface, so this means researchers are worried that it can't feed. Fin whales feed by diving into prey, krill and small fish, with their mouths open, scooping huge amounts of water. But Kodomotsa may not be able to generate the thrust required to feed properly, and the whale is apparently really quite emaciated.
0: Ship collisions are a big problem for whales, aren't they?
2: Yeah, probably at the moment, it's their biggest problem above climate change and getting tangled in fishing line. And and it's one of those things that we've been talking about a bit more recently with um, slightly less ship traffic due to coronavirus shutdowns. There is some work on trying to improve the interpretation of sonar readings so that ships can spot whales ahead of them better. Um, And we are going to have to hope that we can improve this really quickly. So uh, whale strikes don't get even worse than they already are. But it is also worth noting that sonar itself isn't great. It adds to all the noise in the ocean. And and it's thought that at least military use of the technology may be a cause of whale beaching. As for Kodomotsu, the whale with no tail, she's now in her summer feeding ground. So researchers are just hoping that she is going to be able to feed now. If politics is wearing you
0: out, we might have the right podcast for you. Every morning, The Bunker looks at news, current affairs, culture and society from a refreshingly independent point of view. Boris is proud, so he's having to pretend to be a schoolmasterly character when schoolmasterliness is far from his nature and when on the whole he doesn't do his own homework. With panellists including Ian Dunt, Aisha Hazarika, Naomi Smith and Dorian Linsky and guests ranging from David Lammy and Nigella Lawson to Matthew Paris and Deborah Meaden, The Bunker is your escape route from the Politics Punch and Judy show. That's The Bunker, fearless politics talk from the makers of Romaniacs. Get it weekday mornings, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, it's really hot in this little studio where I'm recording in the bedroom. But in the Arctic, it's been alarmingly hot, hasn't it, Penny?
2: Yes, that's right. So on Saturday the 20th of June, a temperature of 38 degrees Celsius was recorded at Vukoyansk in Siberia. If that's verified by the World Meteorological Organisation, that will be the hottest temperature that's ever been recorded anywhere in the Arctic.
0: That's really incredibly hot. And of course, global warming must be behind this. Um, Well, it's what we immediately think of. But do we need to make sure of that and, and, and that it's not just some freak occurrence?
2: So it's actually part of a a broader trend. Uh, A record-breaking heat wave has been going on in Siberia for months now. The Russian Meteorological Agency says the region has been its warmest in about 130 years. And some areas of Siberia were 10 degrees above average for the month of May. But even going back, this has been going on a little while now. So unusually high temperatures for this area were recorded as far back as December, averaging about 8 degrees above the normal level for that time of year.
0: Wow. So climate change really is likely to be the culprit here.
2: It's definitely contributing. In his article on this for New Scientist, Adam Vaughan reported that roughly three degrees of that eight degrees above normal is thought to be down to climate change. So you'll recall that globally we've warmed by about one degree so far, but Siberia is warming faster than the global average. The extra five degrees on top of that is thought to be down to natural variability. Uh, Siberia actually is one of the most variable areas on the planet when it comes to temperature. Why is that? So for this particular heat wave, it's thought that record patterns in the Indian Ocean at the end of 2019 last year have played a role. So you may remember the Indian Ocean dipole. It also contributed to the awful bushfires in Australia at the start of this year.
0: Yeah, it's hard to believe those bushfires happened this year because so much
2: has gone on since then. Yeah, it's been quite a year, but well, six months even. But um, this dipole is also thought to have made the Atlantic jet stream very strong, um, resulting in more heat being transferred to northern Eurasia.
0: And we think that's down to climate change too, do we?
2: It could be. We we can't say for sure, but there is some evidence that fluctuations in the Indian Ocean dipole are getting more dramatic as the ocean warms.
0: And what about local ecological impacts in Siberia?
2: So there have been reports of flowers opening early and swarms of moths. Fires are breaking out, some of them in exactly the same places where they were burning last year. Um, and also permafrost is melting, and, and that's really bad, of course. Uh, permafrost when it melts can release trapped greenhouse gases um, which contributes to climate change further and also melting permafrost in the area has been linked to the collapse of an oil storage tank which isn't great news either.
0: Yeah, it sounds pretty catastrophic.
2: Yeah, it really is. And in some ways, um, we can take this as a bit of a preview of what the region is likely to be like in 80 years' time if, if we don't take meaningful action on climate change now. Samantha Burgess at the Copernicus Climate Change Service told Adam that we should really be taking this as an incredibly loud alarm bell.
0: Yeah, we've heard a lot of alarm bells over the last few years. They seem to be going constantly. So, uh, yeah, it's time to start noticing them.
2: Absolutely. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we have a story in the news this week that has already been written about in science fiction. Rowan?
0: This is the announcement of a record-breaking supercomputer in Japan called Fugaku. Each year there's a supercomputer speed ranking, and this year this new machine, Fugaku, has taken the top spot.
2: So what's particularly exciting or notable about this supercomputer?
0: Yeah, I don't I don't normally get stirred up by computer stories, but um, there are a couple of things about this one. Um By one of the speed measures, it's achieved an operation speed of 1.421 exaflops. Uh, Flops is floating point operations per second, which is a measure of computer performance. So an exaflop is 10 to the 18 operations per second, which is a really ridiculous amount. 10 to the 18 is a billion billion operations per second. Wow. Which means, yeah, if you performed one operation per second, it would take you more than 31 billion years to do what this machine can do in one second.
2: Now, that really is quite amazing.
0: Yeah. It doesn't seem to be quite that fast on on all measures, but it's the first time a computer has ever earned an exascale rating at all, which means we're in the era of exascale computing – Uh, And that's a really big deal in the computer world. It is really hard to get your head around how fast it is. But I saw a nice analogy that if an exascale computer was moving as fast as a Saturn V moon rocket, then the standard desktop computer today would move only a tenth as fast as a snail.
2: Still actually quite hard to get your head around that comparison even.
0: Yeah, it is actually. Um, People are desperate for faster computers to do things like design new drugs and model the climate. Uh, In Japan, this one's going to be used to simulate earthquakes or tsunamis. And there's a coronavirus angle. Computers modelling how a contact tracing app works to slow down the spread of the virus. And it's also looking at the dispersal of viral particles in coughs and sneezes. It Also, there's another couple of other things to say about this thing. It uses ARM processors, and that's a different kind of chip than most other supercomputers, and it's the first time one with this kind has ever been at the top of the charts of the speed list. And all you really need to know about ARM processors is that they have fewer transistors, so they use less power.
2: So that's good news, right, because at the moment supercomputers pretty much require a power station next door to be able to operate.
0: Right, and and people want to reduce the power required for artificial intelligence, and so this is a good step towards that.
2: I've also heard that Apple computers are switching to using ARM chips in all their devices. Uh, what else?
0: The other thing that strikes me about this Uh, listing is if you look at the list this list of the world's fastest supercomputers there are 226 from China 114 from the US and 30 from Japan and it just struck me as pretty wild that China has so many.
2: What are they all being used for?
0: Yeah that's the thing Um, we've written before about China's version of eBay it's a company called Alibaba and and that was basically given all data from the city of Hangzhou Um, So it's been given all video feeds, all social media data, traffic information, absolutely everything. And its stated goal was to improve life in Hangzhou by just letting artificial intelligence take over and and control the city. It's called the city brain. Uh, And when the city brain took over, traffic congestion went down, road accidents were responded to faster. And also the police like it, you know, illegal parking is tracked in real time. If someone breaks the law, they can be tracked throughout the city before the police come and pick them up.
2: The only downside is that every aspect of your life is tracked.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a downside, but then life is easier as a result. Air quality improves, energy use goes down. So you've got you've got this interesting dilemma. I, I sometimes feel we should cede authority to an artificial intelligence because we've made such a bad Job of it, what what do you think, you two?
1: I mean, I definitely think that City Brain could probably be doing a better job of a lot of things right now than uh, <laughs> than <laughs> our government.
0: Than our government, yeah.
2: <laughs> I do worry though. We there's quite a lot of evidence already that we tend to bake our sort of racist, sexist, discriminatory prejudices into AIs when we build them. So so that would scare me a little. I think.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. For the science fiction link, I was tempted to go for the computer in The Matrix because Fugaku actually looks very much like the bit in The Matrix where Keanu Reeves uh, disappears into it. But I wanted to find a more benevolent AI, so I'm going for one called Mike in Robert Heinlein's classic The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Obviously, we're very far from that kind of self-aware artificial intelligence, but that's what I'm going to do for this one.
2: Next, we wanted to discuss a new picture that's emerging of what the reality of COVID-19 has been like for many of those who've had it.
1: Yeah, so when the outbreak started, we thought of COVID very much like a respiratory illness, that in most people, symptoms would be like the flu. And then there was a subset of people who have much more severe um, problems like pneumonia and possibly need the help of a ventilator. Um, But as the weeks and months have gone by, a whole load of other symptoms have come to the fore and a lot of them are quite strange and often very debilitating.
2: So what kinds of symptoms are we talking about?
1: We have a feature on this in the magazine this week and uh, writer Linda Geddes um, posted on a Facebook group for people experiencing COVID-19 symptoms asking if anyone wanted to talk to her about it. And within 24 hours, she'd heard from 140 people and she was really quite shocked by what she heard. A lot of people were experiencing extreme exhaustion even months after their symptoms started. Others had gut issues and were losing a lot of weight. People had brain fog, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle pain, headaches, rashes, numbness. So, you know, you name it really.
2: One of the things we always ask when there's such a sort of broad range of symptoms is how can we be sure that these things are really down to COVID-19, that they're so varied?
1: Well, it's a really good question. And people have been complaining about strange symptoms on, you know, internet forums for quite a while now. And the list of recognised symptoms, at least in the UK, is very short. So that includes fever, a new continuous cough and a loss or change to your sense of smell and taste. Um, So that's very different from what people are reporting. And so their symptoms have kind of been dismissed, by and large, by the medical profession. Um, But now we have a lot of evidence coming in from different sources. So we have doctors who are seeing firsthand things like rashes as they're treating COVID patients. Scientists have looked at other coronaviruses like MERS and SARS. And people who have had those infections do often end up being unwell for, for quite a long time after they've cleared the infection. And a lot of data has come in from the COVID symptom tracker app from King's College London. Millions of people have downloaded that, including a lot of people who were actually tested for the virus. So we know for a fact that they were definitely infected at the time that their symptoms started.
2: So, how can the virus be causing such a diverse range of symptoms?
1: So, we think a lot of it can be explained by the immune system. Some people experience a, a real overactivation of their immune system in response to the virus, and that can lead to inflammation. And this inflammation could be responsible for a number of these different, quite varied symptoms. So, exhaustion, for instance could be due to prolonged inflammation in the brain, and this might even reset your immune response so it stays high, causing the symptoms to go on and on for for weeks and months. Um, The exhaustion could also be caused by tiny clots in the lungs, which means that people aren't getting enough oxygen. So that could explain shortness of breath, headaches, exhaustion. And it turns out that cells lining the gut also have the same receptors on them that the virus uses to get into the lungs. So it might be getting into the gut, causing inflammation there and triggering some of the gut symptoms people are reporting. And actually some studies have found that the virus has messed with people's microbiome, causing an imbalance of good and bad bacteria in the gut long after the virus has actually cleared the body.
2: So where does this leave people who are struggling with some of these
1: symptoms still? Well, one thing a lot of people who spoke to Linda said is that they felt like they've been really ignored, and not taken seriously by the medical profession. So now it looks like these symptoms are real. We need to make sure these people are getting the help that they need. It might make people think really carefully about the kinds of risks that they're prepared to take, because these long lasting effects seem to mainly happen with mild cases. Um, So you might think, oh, well, the worst that could happen, you know, I'm young and I, I probably won't, have two too bad effects if I get infected but actually the thought of having debilitating symptoms for for months on end might really cause people to have a bit of a rethink about that and it's also going to be really important to recognize all the different symptoms if we want successful test and trace programs because how can we identify people with the disease if we don't actually recognize all the symptoms that they're having.
0: That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Kat, and thanks to you for listening.
2: Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and please vote for New Scientist Weekly in the British Podcast Awards at britishpodcastawards.com slash vote.
0: And please subscribe to our show and just spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care. Goodbye. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.